Pray with me, please. Grant, our Father, we pray, that the response of your people in Jeremiah's time will not be the response of your people in our nation at this time to your call to repentance from our sin. Instead, our Father, grant that all of us who name the name of Jesus will turn from our wicked ways and with your help seek to honor you in our lives. Today we acknowledge our religious hypocrisy, our spiritual pride and arrogance, our selfishness and lack of love and genuine care and compassion for the less fortunate. Forgive, O God, our injustice and oppression toward our fellow citizens, our brothers and sisters. Forgive us according to your abundant grace and steadfast love. Forgive us, we beseech you, on the basis of the shed blood of your sinless Son, Jesus Christ. Turn our, heart, our hearts back to you, O God, we pray, and grant that we, your people, will truly live as the light of the world in this dark and sinful society and act as salt in helping to preserve and heal this immoral violent, decaying society in which we live. Help, O oh Lord, the church to be the church. We pray for the salvation of all of our leaders who know you not at this time, so that they may lead this country with divine wisdom and cause its citizens to live in peace and tranquility as they rule with righteousness, justice, and mercy. Father, we pray, remove the disgrace and reproach that national sin has brought upon us, and once more exalt this land to its Christian roots, its heritage and dignity. Help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand, so that you would be able to mold and shape us to your will as the potter does his clay. We humbly but can confidently ask these blessings on the basis of the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen and amen. Beloved, I beseech you then in the name of Jesus Christ to pray for our nation. Now, I believe you can sense where my heart is today. And it's been brought that way because of what I see happening all around us in our beautiful land. My focus for discussion today is a simple principle. It is the principle that God's administering or withholding of judgment upon a nation is directly related to the response of his people to repent and turn from their sin rather than to the response of the wicked, those who do not know him, to do the same. Although, of course, that is included as an end result. 
This was so with Sodom and Gomorrah. They were finally judged because not even 10 people could be found who were living righteously. Sometimes we forget that, my friends, when we talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. Sometimes we think that the only reason why these cities were destroyed was because of the sin of sodomy. But friends, that was only one of many sins. The basic reason was that because the righteous people who were there were not living righteously. God specifically states that one of the reasons for his destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was the sinful life of the religious leaders, the prophets or preachers of his day. Here, the word of God in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 14, to this end. Jeremiah 23, 14, quote, Also among the prophets or preachers of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing, the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. Now remember, he's talking about the preachers in Jerusalem. I have seen a horrible thing, the committing of adultery and walking in falsehood. And they strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them, who's that? The preachers. All of them have become to me like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. End of quote. I want you to notice, my friends, the wicked did not repent of their wickedness in Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as Jerusalem, because the religious leaders, the people of God, the, those who profess to be righteous, were doing the same things the wicked were doing as well. That's why God says he judged those cities. The righteous were not living righteously. The Apostle Peter states the same principle in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, where he declares that judgment must begin with the household of God. Friends, this is a vitally important truth, spiritual teaching that we must remember in this, these days in which we live in which we as believers tend to blame everything that's going wrong in our country only to the sinners, those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. That's not the trust of most of the biblical teaching when it comes to God's judgment upon a nation. Judgment must begin in the household of God. That's Peter. The Apostle Paul teaches the same truth in 1 Timothy 2, where he calls upon the people of God to pray for those who are in authority over us and who are responsible for our safety and law and order in our nation. Listen again to the words of God and listen now to what God is saying, not what you want him to say. 1 Timothy chapter 2 Verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings, 
be made on behalf of all men, for kings, in our case, prime ministers, and all who are in authority. Why? In order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. End of quote. I want you to notice very carefully, brothers and sisters in Christ, tranquility, peacefulness, godliness, and dignity in the community are dependent upon the prayer of the people of God for their leaders. That's the word of God. I ask you then, in the light of the word of God, who carries the real responsibility for, and actually the solution to, the moral decay of our society today? Now, I know our Christian brothers and sisters probably don't like this, but this is the word of God. We must listen carefully to it. Listen to what the Spirit says from his word. And so it is with this truth in mind, and it's an awesome truth. It's been laid upon my heart with renewed force these past days. But with this truth in mind, the truth that judgment begins in the household of God, and in the fact that the condition of the social life around us and what's going on in our society really is a reflection of how the people of God are praying for their leaders. That's one of the factors anyway. And so with this truth in mind, I invite you to think with me this afternoon and we invite your comments, we invite your questions, we want you to be involved. So let me remind you of the telephone numbers again. 322-7846, or 326-0800, We'd love to have you to join in with us and share your thoughts, ask your questions, so we can help to build up and edify one another. So with this truth in mind, I want you to think with me today on the well-known passage in Second Chronicles chapter 7, in which God states his conditions for either blessing or withholding blessing upon his people as the then newly built temple was being dedicated. It is another appropriate and relevant message to us as a nation as we face what is perhaps the most critical moral decline we have ever experienced in our history. Friends, I want you to understand this. We are in a morally corrupt society at this time, generally speaking, because we thank God for those who are living godly lives, those who are upholding the honor and testimony of a triune God but there's so many more who are not. That's the tr focus we want to have today. But now, in order to avoid misrepresentation and erroneous application, 
please be reminded that these words that we'll be looking at in Second Chronicles were spoken specifically to the Jewish people in connection with praying in the place that God had specifically chosen to manifest his presence, and that's the temple. That was being dedicated when these words were spoken. Today, God's temple is not a building, but rather God's temple is both the Christian personally and the church as a whole, not a building. No matter how beautiful, no matter how expensive it may be, that's not God's temple. God's temple is the believer in Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. Not a denomination, but the people who make up the body of Christ. The principles then that we will be looking at must be applied to believers, not unbelievers. It's important for us to understand this. This passage was written to believers, to people of God. This is a mistake that is usually made when applying this passage today. It is applied to the nation as a whole, including unbelievers. However, in context, it can only be legitimately applied today to the church, made up of those who name the name of Christ, no matter what denominational label label you may bear. I want you to understand that because this is the principle we want to understand. We want to see how vital the believer is to a society and to keep it from falling into absolute decay and degradation. Were it not for the believers, even though we are not living as we should, but were it not for the believers, we will have total moral collapse in a society. It's only because of the presence of believers in Christ. I always hear people talking about the church isn't doing anything. The church needs to get out into the community. And most of the times they're thinking of an institution, a building. But you see, the church is in the community. The church is already out there doing good works. The individuals who are involved in the majority of good works in our community are believers in Christ. They're the church. They're already there. They're the church scattered. The same way that you take salt and you sprinkle it on your meat, either for taste or to preserve it, so God has sprinkled the believers throughout the nation in the hospital, in the police force, in the schools, in the churches, in the, out in the fishing boats, out in the taxi cabs, out in the straw market, wherever it is, you have a believer who is living faithfully for Jesus Christ. They're there as the salt of the earth for preservation. And weren't, if it weren't for the church, this world would be an utter mess, morally speaking. Remember that. That's why judgment begins in the household of God. Now, with these things in mind, please listen as I read from the passage. Second, Second Chronicles, chapter 7, beginning at verse 12. As I said, it's a well-known passage. But I want to underline the fact today that it's written to believers, 
not unbelievers. Hear the word of God. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I have heard your prayer. Aren't they beautiful words? I have heard your prayer. Wow. And have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Notice carefully now. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. Notice now, this is God doing it. And in the context, it has them doing it because people disobey him. People turn away from him, and therefore he brings judgment upon the entire nation. Although it's the sins of the believers. Notice now. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, notice now, it's God who brought these things upon the land, and my people, notice, my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. And I will heal their land. Now, though, this is a promise from a God who cannot lie. But this promise has conditions attached to it. Verse 15. Now my eyes shall be open and my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. So you see, the picture is if these people go astray and then they come back to God and come to this temple to pray, God says, I will hear them. Notice he says, For now I have chosen and consecrated this house, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. That's the word of God. We're going to be looking at this passage in detail, but we're going to take a break now before we do so. I want to remind you of the numbers again for your comments, your questions. 322-7846 or 326-0800. We'll be right back after this short break. Welcome back. My focus for our Talking It Through Biblically today is again the principle that God's administering and withholding of judgment upon a nation is directly related to the response of His people to His call to repent and turn from their sin, rather than to the response of the wicked to do the same, although, of course, that is included. This principle was seen in the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is taught in the New Testament by both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. It's a judgment new phase upon with the same and the withdrawal thereof from a nation are always directly related to the response of God's call for repentance on the part of his people from their wickedness. Look carefully at our text then. Second Chronicles chapter seven verse twelve. It begins with these words. If my people, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, 
and will heal their land. Now, remember the context here. This context is that this comes, this prayer, these conditions, as a result of God's judgment upon his people for disobeying his word. However, if they turn, he's now saying, he will withdraw his judgment. That's the context. And here, notice now, he says, if my people, it is my people. It is not the people of the world, the unregenerate, the unsaved, but it's the people of God, those who name the name of Christ, we would say in our day. It is to his people, God's people, that he is speaking. Applied to us today, he is speaking to the Christian, those who claim to be the people of God. And he is stating a principle to his people. If the nation is to experience God's blessing rather than judgment, then the first ones who have to repent are the people of God. But notice now carefully the process. Because there are four conditions God gives for his withholding judgment upon a nation that has turned away from him as he appeals to his people. Notice now. First, God says his people, the Christian, the professing believer, must humble themselves. Now, this implies that his people are proud and arrogant. Or else he would not be commanding that they humble themselves. They don't want to admit that they're sinners. They don't want to admit that they are a cause for a lot of the moral corruption that we see around because of our failure to live righteous lives. Now, this is true to experience and reality today. Many of us as Christians live undisciplined, hypocritical lives. We gossip, we lust after material things, we exhibit greed in our everyday life, we backbite, we spread rumors, we mumble, we grumble, we cheat the government by lying when we fill out our customs forms, we watch X-rated movie, movies in our homes, but yet we think we are better than the drug addict, the homosexual, the alcoholic, the prostitute, the pornographer, the murderer or the thief that was caught. We believe we're better, but our sin sin of the believer, the sin of the Christian, the sin of the church is sin just as their sin is sin. God is saying that unless and until we recognize this fact and humble ourselves and turn to him for, uh, and ask for forgiveness, our nation will never be released from its present state of lawlessness, violence, and corruption. Judgment and repentance must begin the household of God. For instance, right now, today, we are talking about this current issue of gambling. And one of the things that the proponents for gambling always brings up, the church does it. And they're right, of course. Listen carefully. The turnaround, the repentance, must begin with the people of God. And it begins with the humbling of ourselves before God to acknowledge that we have sinned. 
It does not end there, of course, but it begins there. So says the word of God. If my people, it's a condition, humble themselves. Stop being proud and arrogant and acknowledge that we have sinned. Yes, and come short of what glory of God's glory, what he expects of us as believers in Christ. So the first condition for God to lift his hand of judgment upon a nation is for the believers who sin to humble themselves before God. The second condition is for them to pray. You see, what he's telling us is that a primary condition for prayer, acceptable prayer before God, is humility, showing dependence upon God. We cannot go to God proud and arrogant and hypocritical and think God is going to hear and answer our prayer. No, no, no. There must be humbleness on our part. We must acknowledge that we are bankrupt spiritually. That's how the Beatitudes begin. The poor in spirit, those who are spiritually bankrupt and willing to acknowledge before God, willing to beat our chests uh, and bosoms and cry out, forgive me, O God, for I am a sinner. The second condition then is to pray. Historically now, as far as the Jews were concerned, that meant for them to pray specifically in the temple in which he had chosen to manifest his presence. Today, as I mentioned earlier, that temple is the individual believer or the church corporately. The point is, all believers must pray as God commands. Pray showing utter dependence upon God for everything we need spiritually. As mentioned earlier, this in itself is a basic reason the scripture gives for the lack of peace, tranquility, and godliness being experienced in our nation. Now, this is so important, I want to repeat it again. I want to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance of this important truth. Listen carefully then, once more, to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, the word of God. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and prime ministers and all who are in authority that's all of our political leaders both the government and those in opposition and I would include here I believe also quite uh, legitimately religious leaders in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness Indignity. You see that phrase, in order that? In other words, that depends on what comes before the prayer. This is good. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. End of quote. Now, I want you to notice carefully now, this is the word of God. So please be careful as you look at it. And I trust you have your Bibles before you. The Holy Spirit is stating very clearly that tranquility, peace, godliness, and a sense of dignity in our community are directly related 
to Christians praying for those who are responsible for bringing about these conditions, our leaders, our government leaders especially. Notice also that praying for the salvation of these leaders is a key to their serving in such a way that these desired conditions are realized. Now you see though, for us, too many of us, we are so busy blaming and condemning and criticizing the government that we never pray for them. We never pray for them. We disobey the command of God to pray for them and all we do is criticize, not realizing that we are a key to their effectiveness as leaders. And so the word of God is clear, my friends. The end product depends upon the process. And the process here begins with the prayer of the people of God coming with an attitude of humility for the salvation of all citizens, but especially for those who are in authority over us. I say again, according to the word of God, the absence of peace on our streets, the absence of tranquility in our communities, the absence of godliness in our neighborhoods and dignity in our nation is indisputable evidence that we as the people of God have not been doing what God has commanded to us. We have sinned in not praying for the salvation of our nation and its leaders and that they serve in such a way so as to honor God rather than ourselves. We must acknowledge that we have sinned in this area. And this is a sin of which we must all repent and do what God commands if we are to see our nation restored to its one source and a state of peace, tranquility, godliness, and spiritual dignity. So, first condition, humble ourselves. Second condition, pray. One depends upon the other. The attitude must be right. We don't pray from a condition of arrogance or pride, but of broken humility before God, realizing that we have sinned. But the third condition for the healing of our land is that we must seek God's face. We must seek God's face. Now, my friends, this implies an attitude of humility and dependence as well, but also a determination. We are dependent upon God and God alone for a solution to the problems that plague our nation. We must understand that as Christians. The church's response to this present moral crisis cannot be the same as that of those who do not know God or who do not look to him for assistance. Our response must be spiritual, based upon the word of God and energized by the spirit of God, not upon human strength or brute force or even the defense force. Our strength and power must have its source in God and God alone. If all it took to change things was for Christians 
to march in force down Bay Street to protest the apparent lack of action on the part of the government, then we really don't need God at all. All we need is manpower. But God says it's not by our power, but by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. God has clearly told us, I say again, that when it comes to doing things his way, it is not by man's might or power, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord. Friends, please listen carefully, brothers and sisters. When we do things God's way, by showing complete dependency upon him and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can look him right in the face as it were, face to face, and not be ashamed because we know that we have done things his way and not ours. And so, beloved, I appeal, I appeal to you then, as God's people, let us humble ourselves, let us pray, and let us seek his face. Now that is a strong term of determination there. It means that we go after this aggressively with purpose. Seek his face for a solution to the plague of sin and violence and lawlessness that is now destroying our nation. Humble ourselves and then in dependence upon him, go to him in prayer and seek him out. Seek him out. Search hard after him. That's what he's saying here. This all shows that we are dependent upon a holy, righteous, and powerful God. Now again, I want to encourage you, if you are there listening, and I'm sure you are, please give us a call if you have comments or questions. I know sometimes we have a flurry of calls after we finish, and people say, well, we didn't want to interrupt, we waited until you were finished and all of that. No, we want to hear you. We have about 15 minutes left, so I encourage you to do that. Let me give you the numbers again, 322-7846. 322-7846 or 326-0800, 326-0800. I'll just say a few more words. We'll have one more break, and then we'll conclude our program. Because we've looked at three conditions for having God's hand of blessing to rest once again on our nation. First is to humble ourselves before him, do away with pride and arrogance on our part. And then we are to pray. We are to go before him to acknowledge that we need him desperately, and then we are to seek his grace. We are to seek him earnestly. That's what the text is saying. We come now to a fourth condition for the healing of our land, and that is that we as his people, and I remind you again, it's his people, we must turn from our wicked ways. We must turn from our wicked ways. This simply means that God's people have to repent of our sinful behavior if God is to heal our land. Now remember, I'm talking to Christians now. I'm not talking to the sinner. I'm not talking to the, the murderer or the, the thief or the homosexual or the greedy. No, no, I'm talking to those who profess to know Jesus Christ as Savior. He says that we're going to see a change in this community. Christians have to turn from their wicked ways. Now Christians may protest that it is the godless drug 
pusher or addict or the perverse rapist or the heartless thief who are responsible for the crime and violence in our nation and that it is they who must repent. Well, we can say all we want and we can protest as much as we like, but God's word still stands. He says that is the believer who has to repent of their wickedness if our nation is to be healed of its plague of violence, corruption, and immorality. After all, if the preservative is not applied, who or what is really responsible for the decay, the putrefaction, and rotting of the meat? Is it the meat or the lack of salt? The answer is obvious. If the nation is walking in darkness, is it the fault of those who do not have the light, or is it the fault of those who have the light but do not let it shine? Again, the answer is obvious. Beloved, we, the Christians, are the light of the Bahamas and the salt of this nation. We cannot blame the sinner for sinning, but we certainly can blame the Christian for doing so. It takes only ten righteous to withdraw God's hand of judgment. That's what was taught in that passage we read. Let's apply it today. If it takes only ten righteous to withdraw God's hands of judgment upon us, let me ask you something. Will you be one of those righteous people who live righteously? Will you repent of your wicked ways as a believer? Now, it may surprise some Christians, but God's call for repentance in the Bible is given more often to his own people than is given to the unsaved or the unrighteous. This in itself tells us that God is intensely concerned as to how believers, his people, live in the world. He knows that we will stray away from him and that we will sin. But he does not want us to stay away from him and to remain in our sin. He wants us to turn back to him. He wants us to repent. And when we do, not only are we restored to fellowship with him, but the community and nation in which we live also benefit in that God will bless the nation on account of the presence of his people who are living in keeping with his word, living righteously. Remember, even Sodom and Gomorrah would have been spared if only ten righteous people could have been found practicing righteousness in those cities. Thus, in actual fact, these cities were not destroyed because of the presence or actions of the unrighteous, but rather it was destroyed because of the absence and lack of the actions of the righteous. Because the repentance of believers is such a key element in the life of a nation and its people, I want to look at this carefully. Let me begin by giving a definition of the concept of repentance. I want you to look at two aspects of repentance, godly repentance and worldly repentance. But before I do so, I think we need to have one more break, and then I'll come back and we'll conclude. But again, we encourage you to call in, make comments, ask questions. We only have a few moments left. 322-7846 or 326-0800. ECB, Excellence in Christian Broadcasting. The Bible differentiates two different types of repentance. One is called godly repentance. The other is called worldly repentance. Godly repentance is the response of a person to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit within him or her concerning their failure to honor God 
by rebelling against his standards for living as set forth in the word of God. A recognition of this rebellion, and that's what it, that's what it is, invokes a genuine sorrow for an acknowledgement of this sinful action and attitude, causing the person to appeal to God for forgiveness, for mercy, and a desire and ability to live a life pleasing to God. Now, there's several factors involved here. First, it is the act of the Holy Spirit or the work of the Holy Spirit within us. It is not something we do ourselves. Friends, listen. Genuine repentance is always produced by the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us. He both initiates and executes repentance. He begins it and brings it to its conclusion. That is why the importance of repentance in the life of a believer is best understood when it is seen as an essential element or ingredient ingredient of progressive sanctification. Secondly, with the Holy Spirit convicting the person of the sin against God is the beginning of this process. It therefore begins with a change of mind, which is the basic meaning of the Greek word for repentance, metanoia. Now, several important implications may be derived from this fact. First, we can only repent when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Conviction causes us to see things God's way, to change our minds about what we are doing or thinking so as to bring them into the agreement with God. His word is always the standard for change. In other words, genuine repentance is a change that brings us in line with the word of God. Oswald Chambers puts it this way. Strictly speaking, he says, a person cannot repent when he chooses. Repentance is a gift of God. That's why when the Spirit of God speaks to you about a sin, that's the time to repent, because he might not do it again. The point being here, then, is godly repentance is only possible when the Spirit of God convicts a person of this sin. Apart from this, there can be no genuine repentance, only hypocritical self-renovation which will not last. Genuine repentance consists of quitting your resistance to the Holy Spirit, seeing matters God's way, and going along with the process that God is doing in your life. And so what God is saying, I believe, to us as Bahamians, as Christians, is this. If you humble yourselves by confessing and turning from your wicked ways, I will heal your land, your beautiful Bahama land. Godly repentance produces a genuine sorrow because of the recognition that we have hurt or we have displeased God. We have grieved the Holy Spirit. We must therefore avoid the mistaken notion that repentance is merely a cover for sorrow because of the consequences of wrongdoing. You see, when the Holy Spirit stirs a person's conscience and brings him into the presence of God, it is not that person's relationship with others that is the major concern, but rather... It's his relationship with God. Friends, listen now. The surest sign that God is at work in your life is when you say, I have sinned, and you really mean it. Anything less is to imply sorrow for having made a foolish mistake. That's a worldly repentance. Paul calls it worldly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7. Listen to the word of God. I now rejoice... Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. 
For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. End of quote. You see, godly repentance, genuine repentance, prompts a person to acknowledge that he or she has sinned against God. It is the beginning of an understanding of God. It always brings a person to the point of saying, I have sinned. Friends, listen. There can be no genuine repentance without this. Confession is a result of God's Spirit working in our life. And it causes us to say that we agree with God that our life is not in keeping with His Word or His will. Then we will, and we also acknowledge and confess that we have come short of glorifying God in our life. This motivates a person to ask God for forgiveness. And it must be remembered that confession of sin is absolutely necessary for forgiveness. The Apostle John makes this clear. Listen to his words in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus teaches the same thing in Luke chapter 17, verse 3. He says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you and seven times a day and returns to you seven times and says, I repent, then you forgive him. End of quote. It is clear then, my friends, forgiveness is conditioned upon confession of sin. This is why I believe that if we are going to see a healing in this land of ours, if we're going to see the plague of violence and corruption and greed for material wealth go away, then the church and individual believers must lead the way in confessing that we have sinned against God because of our failure to live righteously in an unrighteous society and to live godly in an ungodly world. Repentance or turning from our wicked ways as commanded by God is the consequence of sincerely acknowledging to God that we have sinned against Him. Any confessing to our fellow man must follow confession to God or else genuine repentance is impossible. My friends, this I believe is God's clear teaching for having his hand of blessing to once more be placed upon Bahamas land. Here again as I close then the word of God to the people of God in the Bahamas paraphrase to fit our local situation at this moment. Quote, If I withhold blessing from heaven or if I command the criminals to devour the land, or if I send a violence among my people, and my people, born-again Christians, who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, the sin of Christians, and as a result I will heal the land in which you live from violence, lawlessness, and corruption. I will heal Bahamalan. Beloved, fellow Christian, do you really believe the word of God? If you do, and I do, then we will repent and bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. As always, this is Pastor Lee saying, Sila, think and act on these things. Easy, easy be, easy, easy be, excellence in Christian broadcasting.